0: Mormon Discussions and its lineup of great podcasts is about helping Latter day Saints like you tackle deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping these podcasts alive and supporting listeners like you.
1: To support the programs on this podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber
0: or making a donation at Mormondiscussions.org. Again, that's Mormon Discussions, plural with an S on the end.org. Donate today and support programs like Mormon Discussion, Radio Free Mormon, Mormon Awakenings, the Mormon Wellness
1: Project, Mormon History Podcast, Marriage on a Tightrope, and others. If these programs benefit you and you want to see these continue, please consider making an annual
0: donation starting today. All donations are tax-exempt inside the United States and go towards keeping the podcast alive.
1: Mormon Mormon Discussion and and its lineup of great programs. programs,
0: helping you navigate Mormonism. One episode at a time. And now, onto what you've been waiting to hear. Welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Reel. Grateful for the chance to sit with you today and to have this conversation. I've been thinking a lot lately about the psychological mechanisms that exist within Mormonism. Specifically, the mechanisms that dissuade us from talking openly and honestly about the messiness of Mormonism, about the questions that we have, and about where we're struggling with the church and the way the church behaves. And you see, in an unhealthy uh, groups in unhealthy high demand fundamentalist religions there is for good reason mechanisms within those religions that persuade us that encourage us that sometimes even impose on us that that we refrain from divulging that we have serious concerns about our faith or that, something doesn't add up, or to raise a hand and to speak against something false that was said in a class. And I hope today as I go through these, you're gonna see that within Mormonism, this is pretty dramatic. And and I don't I think we sense these individually, but I think it's gonna do us a great service today to talk about these collectively. And and so I'll start with uh, President Packer. Uh, President Packer says everything that's true is not necessarily useful. Uh, there's this idea that he's saying that, that just because something is true doesn't make it useful. And in Mormonism, the way this rears its ugly head is that every teacher in the church, if they've come across either this quote by President Packer or others that are along the same vein, is that the teacher recognizes that, you know, there's more to this story, or there's another tangent to go down that seems more important within Mormon history, within the Mormon experience, but it's not going to build faith. So we're not going to share it today. So for instance, when, when we're in our Sunday school class and the manual shares a piece of Mormon history at a very superficial, simplified, whitewashed level, if you're in the class as one who has concerns because you've gone down the rabbit hole, you perceive quite uh, easily that you're going to go against the grain of raising your hand and adding additional information that is true, but which is not faith building. And so President Packer's quote, which again, the other thing I have to stop and say is this, the Orthodox believing Mormon, as we go through this list, the Orthodox believing Mormon isn't aware of the depth of all of these things probably not aware of 90% of the quotes that we're going to talk about today. It's only the person who's reading and thinking and diving into the messiness of Mormonism who's aware of these things having been said. So these things are only an influence on the person who recognizes that the dominant narrative isn't true. It's only those individuals. And so, the idea that what you know everything that's true is not useful. It's the person who understands the messiness of Mormonism who knows that quote. So as we start off here, this quote by Packer, everything that's true is not necessarily useful. We recognize that there is a pressure, institutional pressure, on each of us as members to not divulge additional facts. If those facts are not faith promoting and we feel that pressure in a class, we feel that pressure when we're having conversations with other members of the church. And I distinctly remember knowing lots of information and data and conceding to the institution that I just am not going to bring that up to the class Because it's not going to be faith-promoting, even though it corrects the less-than-accurate tellings that we have within our correlated material. The second one I want to talk about is this uh, prevailing teaching that we, as those of us with doubts—and I want to speak to that later here, too—this idea of having doubts. But for now— let's use the phrase, those who have doubts, that you are told not to be having those conversations about your doubts and your questions to the membership generally, but instead that you are to keep those conversations with your bishop. Your bishop is the person to talk to. Go talk to them privately. Don't share your concerns and your doubts and your questions With the membership generally. And so while the church talks out both sides of its mouth, because it also says that questions are okay and Sunday school is the place to ask questions, we also realize that the moment those conversations are raising doubts in others, that you have crossed a line, that you are to sit with your bishop one on one and have those conversations. Now, as you and I both know, 95% of bishops, maybe 99% of bishops are ill-equipped to handle that. They do not have the ability to navigate the messiness of Mormonism, understanding the data and the sources and what the church has told them that is inaccurate, what the church has told them, uh, what the church has not told them, what it's withheld. So this idea of you as a member, you feel this pressure like, oh, I have something I want to say here, but I'm supposed to just talk to the bishop about that. The next one is what I just referred to, which is the idea that those of us who have doubts, um, I want to talk for a moment about terms. Uh, in the church, we have the term, and we, and we have it in society in general and in religion in general, right? The, the word faith crisis, the phrase faith crisis. And don't get me wrong, when you wake up to the messiness of Mormonism, faith crisis feels like a really good phrase to use. And then I, I want to talk about doubt here in a second too as a term. But back to faith crisis. It's a phrase that feels right because we're in this time of anguish. We're in this time of, of cognitive dissonance. We are uh, having our assumptions and expectations challenged. And we feel this tension of wanting to belong to this tribe, but also realizing that our authentic self isn't sitting well with the way our tribe believes or the way our tribe behaves. So we we use this phrase, faith crisis, like I'm having a faith crisis. But at some point, as we open ourselves up to like exploring this, it doesn't take long before we realize like, oh no, wait a minute, this really isn't a crisis. This is some kind of growth. Something positive is happening here. So, this term begins to lose its value. It's why you see these conversations out in social media or in progressive Mormonism, where we say, like, the phrase faith crisis isn't adequate. It's not the right word. We use it because it, it quickly conveys a lot of information to those around us. But here's the issue. Here's the crux. The word faith crisis implies that there's something wrong with you, the person who is having this shift. You're the one in crisis, not the other members, not the church, not the machine, not the institution, not its leaders. You, you're the one who is less than broken, fallen, struggling, not in the right place. It's you who needs to fix something. And and so even after we learn about faith development, even after we learn about um, stages of faith and binary and dualistic and moving from that to uh, having a nuanced view and leaving outer authorities to grab your inner authority, even once we fully see that this shift is not a crisis but was a step into progressive growth, within ourselves, we continue to use this phrase because we recognize that it's the soft, faithful language that keeps everybody else comfortable. Do you see that? You have used wording to cater to others, which describes your journey incorrectly because you want to create a faithful space where someone will hear you and listen to you. Do you see the damage that does? When you're not authentic, instead of saying, I'm having a faith crisis, because we do it all the time. Instead of saying, saying I'm having a faith crisis, why not? And again, I get it. We, we want there to be a safe space to open up a dialogue But do you see in the long run, most people are resistant to that conversation anyway. And now they get to go home and say, yeah, Jenny's having a faith crisis. Thank goodness we're doing what we're supposed to be doing because we're not having a faith crisis. The wording we should be using is around growth and development and learning and growing and becoming more whole. That language is more accurate. Now, for those who are in the initial stages, by all means, I think the phrase faith crisis describes what you're having because you haven't quite understood yet this process and what it will look like in six months, in a year, and in five years. I've been going through this thing for seven to nine years, seven years really hard. And then two years before that kind of beginning stages of opening my eyes to to a non-dualistic world. Seven years to process this and not at all today would I say I'm having a faith crisis. Like I am confident on what I know and how this fits together and how it doesn't fit together. And I am confident. That doesn't mean I won't learn new things. That doesn't mean I'm gonna close myself off to more progress or more learning or more development. But it certainly means like I look back and go, I've explored these 2000 issues and the writing is on the wall and I've left these paradigms and I've entered these paradigms and I see others who are, who are even more developed and they've gone into those paradigms. Frame this as growth. The church doesn't want you to frame it as growth. The church wants you, if you're going to talk about it, which we don't want you to, but if you're going to talk about it, describe it as a faith crisis. The second one is the word doubt. We talked about that. I have doubts. It's the same thing. You say to others in Sunday school, I have doubts about this issue. But do you see, the word doubts paints that you're the one who has a problem. You're the one who is unsure while they are certain. Using the word doubt, is a word that we've been trained to use. And the church doesn't like that word either, as you very well know. So it's twofold. One is that the church wants you to say, I have a doubt or I have a question rather than saying, I've explored this issue. I understand the information tenfold more fully than you do. And here's where the data leads, and here are the conclusions a rational person makes from that data. The church doesn't want you to say that. If you're going to say something like that, the church wants you to say, I have a question. Or if you're going to have to, say, I have a doubt. But the church then comes right in and says, but doubts are bad. Doubts lead away. Questions lead one back into the church. So when you use the word doubt, the membership is already trained to see that word as a negative word. Again, you are painting yourself as weaker. You're painting yourself as unfaithful, unsure, having lost the confidence, which also means you have lost the spirit. And yet, because we want to create faithful space, we go into these classes and we say, I have a question or i have a doubt about this that framing reinforces their certainty and unknown or unknown said or unsaid it paints a loss of confidence for them in you not in the issue we have to start speaking up if you, if it's not that you have a doubt see that's the point I got so far where I'm like, initially, I'm like, I have doubts about which first vision account is most accurate, right? But once I understood the data and I said, what's the most rational way to interpret this data? I no longer had doubts. Why in the heck would I sit in a class and raise my hand and say, I have doubts about which first vision account is the most accurate? That's not true. But we say it that way. Because it makes a safe space for you to enter the dialogue. We have to stop couching our words to create safe spaces. We have to impose our truth as our truth. You don't have to impose your truth as the truth for everyone. But you have a right. In Mormonism, you can already feel uncomfortable with that, right? Like when I said that, that got you uncomfortable. Ooh, ooh, I don't... I don't know that we should be imposing our truth. Really? It's your truth. The church welcomes people imposing their truth when they express certainty in the gospel of Jesus Christ as in the way they lay it out. Why the heck don't you have a right to your truth? Why don't you have a right to your truth? So when you're in class, stop softening your rhetoric Stop couching your words in the most faithful of language because all you're doing is keeping everybody comfortable. And you think you're initiating a dialogue? But ask yourself, how's that working for you? At some point, stand up for your truth. Say, "I don't need I don't need everyone else to agree with me, but I want to state my truth. Here's my truth on this issue." You have a right to that. Nobody should ever silence you from sharing your truth. Nobody should ever silence you from sharing your truth. So long as you don't impose it as absolute truth. Stand up for what you believe. The church doesn't want you to do that. The church does not want all the members across the church who recognize the messiness and know that the church's narrative doesn't add up The church does not want you standing up and sharing your truth. They would rather you say, I I have a question or I have a doubt. And again, they're going to continue to paint questions as good because questions lead someone back into the church and back into orthodoxy and back into certainty. And doubt leads one further away from that. And so the church loves when you use the word doubt because it already lets the members go, oh, he's got doubts. He's falling away. He's falling away. You see, doubts are bad, and yet we are taught we must frame our negative, negative in terms of being contrary to the truth claims of the church and its narrative, that we must frame our negative perceptions of such as uncertainty. Do you see that? When you go into a class and you're like, yeah, I know the 1838 account is simply not the most accurate telling of Joseph's experience like i understand this development and shift in Joseph and how he originally tells his story to now and the reasons behind it and what's going on behind the scenes like the 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 rest of the room is welcome to hold on to that 1838 account but that's not the ground i hold when you go to share that with the class you feel this pressure like oh i can't frame my conclusion as certainty, I can't do that. I have to tell the class that I have questions and doubts about this. Because if I express my certainty that the 1838 account is not accurate, I'm going to somehow damage the space in this room for this conversation. But in the long run, again, ask, how's that working for you? You sense that the church has this uh, aura in these conversations. It has these ideas that just sit in the ether in these conversations that anytime you state a conclusion that validates that something within this machine is wrong, Something within this institution is not healthy. Something within this machine's story is not true or accurate. That you expressing that certainty is bad. It's bad. Next, the idea of making allowances. Terrell Givens, in an interview years ago with John Dolin from Mormon Stories, John Dolin is asking him issue after issue after issue after issue after issue. And Terrell Givens, A brilliant man, brilliant mind, is walking John into the plausibilities of these issues. And Terrell paints a picture where he's essentially saying, yes, the church defines itself this way. And and Terrell uses the phrase allowances. Terrell says, if you make certain allowances then you can see the church is still true, even if it's something completely different than the way the church defines itself. And, and these allowances, right? Anytime in your life where you make allowances, if you, you must realize, I just did an interview with a gentleman by the name of Spencer Wright, who wrote a book who designed to help us understand like when our thinking enters the sphere of irrationality. So there's this idea that an apologist uses this all the time, and Terrell uses it brilliantly, but it's this idea that the evidence leads to a certain conclusion. The most rational way to come down on this issue after you've explored all the data is that ABC is what happened. Like if you say, like, look, you're hooked up to a lie detector test, and yes, there's lots of possibilities here, but what's the most rational possibility here? And you realize like, oh, the most rational possibility is that the church isn't what it claims to be and that the church is not what it claims to be. And then folks like Terrell Givens come in and say, but if you make allowances, if you make allowances, suddenly there's other plausibilities out there. Now those plausibilities are sometimes problematic. They're less reasonable. Do you recognize the moment you do that, you have entered the sphere of irrational thought. Take, for instance, the idea that we never landed on the moon or that the earth is flat. If you say, like, here's all the evidence and it leads me to see that the earth is round, no ifs, ands, or buts, right? And someone comes along and goes, but if you make allowances, if you make allowances, the earth could be flat. Do you see the moment you make allowances? Not that here's a new piece of data. Have you considered this? And that data now makes a new conclusion more reasonable and rational. No, 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 not that. Rather, if you make certain allowances, if you grant extra space, if you grant uh, that one of the less rational, reasonable answers could be the real answer. The moment you do that, You have engaged irrational thought. So there's this idea that throughout the church, you have to make allowances. But this only works one direction. Let me give an example. The church, in its gospel topic essay on the first vision, still holds the position that the 1838 account is the best account. It claims that even though there are discrepancies even though there is a backstory that we're not going to tell you, but there is a backstory that adds additional evidence, we are simply going to impose that the 1832 account and the 1835 account are less filled in by Joseph. They're just simply missing some details. And it's a little different way of him framing it. But in reality, they support the 1838 account. That imposition does not have any strength to it. That imposition is the weaker argument, yet the church decides like, oh, we have to hold our narrative together. So we're simply going to impose the less rational, less reasonable answer. But for you, you who recognizes this data doesn't lead to that conclusion. You have to soften the way you say it. You see, the church has no problem imposing the less reasonable answers when it benefits it. But when it doesn't benefit it, it expects you to make allowances. Does the church make an allowance that you are free to believe the 1832 account is the most accurate account? No. No. The church doesn't make allowances when it doesn't benefit it. You see, the church's language is of certainty and of sternness and of rigidity. It's going to hold its position even if it's the less reasonable position, and it's going to impose its less reasonable position as true, as certain. So it encourages you to make allowances the less reasonable answers to work, but it does not encourage you to make allowances to disagree with its rigidity and to take the most reasonable conclusions. You see, that road doesn't go both ways. Making allowances is something that the church and apologists use to get you to believe the less reasonable answer. On the other hand, The church refuses to make allowances for you to be fully believing and to hold the more reasonable conclusion on issues that you disagree with the stance the church is taking. I hope that makes sense. Making allowances only goes one way. Making allowances is a trick that we use to keep you in to keep you believing, to keep you holding on. But in reality, making allowances is not something the church wants to give you room to do in terms of disagreeing with its positions on things like which first vision account is the most accurate. And once you understand that making allowances only goes one way, you can see it. And once you see it, you'll never unsee it again. The next one the idea that contention is of the devil. We are trained as Mormons throughout our entire lives that to show anger, to show frustration, is a sign that one has been taken hold of by the adversary. You see, it is reasonable, it is right that when one feels deceived and betrayed, when one sees that, that someone else has withheld information, has not given them the full story, has flat out lied to them, it is normal human nature to be angry, to be upset, to be frustrated. So when you go into a class and someone says something out of orthodoxy, that hurts you or your loved ones or those you care about and you raise your hand and you say no we are not allowing that to be said here without also having the counterpoint shared if you do that with any amount of anger or frustration which is normal human behavior the church has taught the other members to dismiss you because you are angry and contentious this goes even further. If you share a point that is confusing or confounding to the certainty of that person. In other words, someone goes, that 1838 account, I have a testimony that God saw the father and the son in the grove on a spring morning in the year 1820. And you raise your hand and you say, do you guys know about the 1832 account? There's only one heavenly personage that shows themselves. Joseph goes there for different reasons. Uh, this is what happens. That what happens. It happens in his 16th year. We're not sure of the age that Joseph was. We're not sure exactly what he saw in the grove. All of a sudden, you've caused everyone in that room to go, oh my goodness, I feel uncomfortable. And that discomfort, that confusion, God is not the author of confusion, God is the author of certainty. God is the author of light and knowledge. We as Latter-day Saints have been told to believe the church's story, to not question it. And if anybody raises any point that causes us to be uncomfortable or confused, it is not of God. Mormonism has trained membership to dismiss you. And this goes so far. Like, I've been in classes where I've read a fact, and people have raised their hand and said, you ought to be careful, Brother Real, because we don't want people to lose the spirit in this class. Like, why does the truth make us uncomfortable? And it's because the church told a story and imposed it with certainty, and that story doesn't hold up but members have been trained to hang on to that anyway, rather than to allow themselves to say like, oh, out in the real world, we weigh different pieces of information, we look at different sources, we weigh the data, and we accept that maybe we need to change our mind if the data leads us to a new conclusion. Let's test our assumptions. Let's test our expectations. We do that in school every day. And yet, when it comes to our religious faith, we accept an entirely different paradigm and we cling to it with a death grip. Contention is of the devil. Criticism is bad. Anger, frustration, those are a loss of the spirit. The next one. Our stories make no space for someone to leave with their dignity. In Mormonism, We have no healthy telling of people who leave the church and do so for their own benefit. I don't mean their own benefit, like their own uh, conceited need to be lazy and to sit. No, like we don't have any stories that say like, hey, Jenny left and it was the right thing for her to do, both for her as well as understanding in God's eyes it was the right thing for Jenny to leave this tribe. We don't have any healthy stories of people who leave this tribe and we let them leave with their dignity. Whether it's Thomas Thomas Marsh and Milk Strippings, whether it's Simon's writer and his name, whether it's William Law or William McClellan, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it's Emma Smith It doesn't matter if it's Oliver Cowdery and Martin Harris and David Whitmer. It doesn't matter. Everybody who leaves this tribe was wrong for doing so. And those who stay are better off in God's eyes. We tell that story at every turn. Listen to the lessons. Listen to the manuals. Every story we tell is that somebody left for some sinful reason, some arrogant reason, some unrepentant reason, some sinful reason. And such is the case that we never, as an unhealthy, high-demand, fundamentalist religion, we never let someone leave with their dignity. The closest we come is Elder Uchtdorf saying it's complicated. Sometimes people think about these things for years before disconnecting from the church that's it 200 years and that's the closest we've come ever that's the only somewhat positive statement we've ever made on why people leave and yet there are a hundred stories that we perpetuate that aren't even historically accurate that say when people leave they don't get to do so with their dignity we have the wheat and the chaff. We have people being wayward. We use the phrase, those who are wayward. Again, painting them as less than. They're apostates. We talk about people specifically telling their story for them and telling it inaccurately. We have no right, no right to tell another story and on top of that to tell it inaccurately. But again, the church doesn't make allowances for Thomas Marsh. It doesn't make allowances for Oliver Cowdery or David Whitmer. It doesn't make allowances for Simon's writer. No, your job is to make allowances. Its job is to impose its inaccurate, whitewashed, simplified narrative and to paint people as bad any time they oppose this thing i was just in a conversation this morning with a dear friend talking to him about the messiness of mormonism and any time you share any piece of data that comes from someone who left the church that is not to be trusted those are the enemies those are the critics those are the guys who lie this is so unhealthy folks for those who stay you're welcome to i won't tell anybody they have to leave but I've left. I've disconnected. Because this machine is unhealthy. This machine doesn't let you tell your truth. This machine this machine does not let you tell your story. It imposes that you use certain rhetoric, you use certain framing, and you make allowances when it does not grant the same. Lastly, you have Elder Oaks that you are not to criticize the leaders of this church even if the criticism is true. Think about it in the world. Like Elder Oaks also, like maybe he's changed his mind since he said that back in like 1998 or whatever year it was. Maybe he's changed his mind, but no, just a few years ago, questions are honored. Opposition is not. In the church, there's no such thing as loyal opposition. I hope you sense how unhealthy That is, think about in the world, organizations, institutions, people that you are simply not allowed to raise critical thought about. Where in the world are you not allowed to criticize? And then ask yourself, if you make a list of those things, those places, ask yourself how healthy that is. I hope you see today in this episode just how many mechanisms there are and there are more there are hundreds more we've only done a list of 6 or 7 or 8 of them and think about how much pressure is on you every sunday in sunday school in priesthood or relief society to word your to choose your words carefully to word things in a certain way to soften your rhetoric does the church soften its rhetoric does it does it step back and say hey We've told some stories and a lot of those stories aren't accurate. They're not historically true. No, your job is to soften your rhetoric. Your job is to admit when you're wrong. Your job is to admit that there's other possibilities and plausibilities, not ours. You see, those roads don't go both ways. And so I realized like it just wasn't healthy anymore to stand up in a class and to raise data and facts and say, guys, we have framed this inaccurately. And so every Sunday I was leaving having felt trauma or having to remain silent. And that brought trauma too. Mormonism is an unhealthy, high demand, fundamentalist religion. And you and you and I, we stayed because we thought, hey, we can make a difference. We can nudge this thing to change. You see, early on, I thought, this church is true. This church is good. They just don't understand. And if, if folks like you and me, we can raise our hand and say like, hey, church leaders, is there any chance you might consider that you're getting some of these things wrong and that you might address them head on? I thought they'll do that. They'll fix this thing. If we tell them that they're telling historically inaccurate stories, they'll fix this thing. If we tell them the evidence and reasoning why the 1832 account should be given a safe space to be held as a more accurate story, they'll see that. They'll make changes. If we tell them how much polygamy hurt people and how much their positions on race and LGBT issues hurt people, they'll come around, they'll acknowledge the hurt and the pain, and they're going to make the corrections needed. How's that going? You see, we all stay to try and fix this thing, to try and help it, encourage it to be what we know it is, which is good and true. And at some point, the true peace fell off. And we said, well, maybe it's not what it claims. But it's still good. And it's still ran by good people. And if we just continue to nudge it, it'll come around. And then at some point, the good falls off. And all you're left with is saying, like, this is my tribe. These are my people. And I stay. Because this thing, this thing I want to belong to so bad.'" And it tells you that you're not going to be happy. You're not going to really be happy if you leave. You're not going to have real joy if you leave. And you believe it. You're like, you're scared. What if I go? What if I leave? What happens if I step away? Will my life go down the drain? Will my wife leave me? Will my children run into problems with drugs and sex? And we tell ourselves those things because we're scared. To take our own life into our own hands and make new decisions. And eventually the trauma became so great that our family had to step away. And when we did that, sure, there was times where our kids were rebellious. There were times where things weren't going quite right. But now we're months and months and months removed from the physical activity And we're a year or so removed from the mental activity. And as I'm a year removed, it was the best decision our family could have made. My kids would tell you that. My wife would tell you that. And I tell you that. May each of you do what's best for you and yours. Some of you are in situations where you're in a mixed faith marriage. Don't jeopardize that. I get it. Do what's best for you and your family. We all have to make choices. But please recognize the mechanisms that are there that keep your story from ever being honored and validated. Today, every weekend, we have a close-knit group of friends here in Southern Utah. Every weekend, I get together with those friends. They honor my story they validate my story. They let me hold and tell my truth. There's nothing in the world that is better than being with a group of friends, having a spouse, and having children who honor and validate your story and who let you hold and tell your truth. May the Lord warm your shoulders. In the sacred name of Jesus Christ, he who allowed people to hold their ground and who allowed them to be different and to have a different truth than the church, which he was a part of in the sacred name of him who did that. Amen.
1: All the pain is gone, but I remain the same. Taking.